I was kind of sad that um, the bridge to that last song wasn't uh, wasn't put up there. Um, it's really uh, some amazing words. Hopefully, we'll uh, soon enough be able to, to to sing them. But it just declares. Uh, as the verses do in Christ alone, my hope is found, but how Jesus Christ is everything that we all need and that we're seeking and we're longing for in this life. I was uh, having a conversation uh, maybe about two weeks ago with, uh, with someone, and he was asking, actually he was recounting a conversation that he had had with some people um, at school, and they are talking about why in our world are there things like birth defects? Why are children born uh, defective, according to the world. Why are children born with, with brokenness and with pain in their lives? And as I was uh, recounting that conversation earlier this week, um, I came across a blog of a girl. Her parents are writing it. She's about four or five years old. Um, Ella Joy, I think her name. Beautiful, beautiful little girl. Just a wonderful smile. A talented in so many ways. Sweet, loves the Lord God and wrestling in the fourth stage of cancer. And I wondered why in the world, why in the world did things like this happen? And, and this morning as I was reading the news and reading about uh, in Philippines, typhoons that have killed already, I think, nine or ten people in a massive typhoon that just hit India. Uh, and, and, and in India, uh, on this one bridge, 80-some people died because there was, uh, there was word that the bridge was going to fall and there was a stampede and hundreds of people on that bridge and 89 or so of them died. And I think about this world that we live in and all of its brokenness and all of its messed upness. Think about, I mean, you, can, you and I could think of countless examples of ways, even today, even this week that we looked at, Ways We've seen ways in which we realize that this world as we know it is not a world that we can look at and say like God did at creation and say, this is good. When was the first time that you began to realize in your mind that this world isn't good? Now, I can remember times when I was little, uh, when I was in early years in elementary school, my, my friends in school came to me and they said, hey, did you see that movie called Adam? And I was like, no, I didn't see it. And they were talking about this little boy. He's probably like five years old. And it was a story of his life. His name was Adam Walsh. And it was a story of, of a little boy who went off somewhere and he was, he was kidnapped. And I remember in early days, first and second grade, these kids in my class all talking about it. And talking about what would it look, what would happen if we got kidnapped? And, and I remember thinking at that time, wow, this world is a lot scarier than I realized it to be. It's a lot worse off than I would have wanted as a five, six-year-old kid to think the world was. When was the first time you realized that this world was broken? A lot of people say, actually studies are coming out now saying that fourth grade is when a lot of young people realize and begin to see the brokenness in the world. Fourth grade is when people encounter in a real first-hand way the reality of bullying. They begin to understand the reality of parental strife and, and, and discord. They begin to experience all of these things. And so fourth grade is when um, people say you, you, parents really need to actually all up until that point in time. But if you lost them at like fourth grade, then it's very hard. But we've got to elevate our game right around that time because that's such a crucial age in the lives of young people when they begin to realize that this world isn't what I thought it was. It wasn't a good world the way that I thought it was. What happened? 
Everything that we've been reading up until this point in time tells us that God made the world and saw that it was good and said it's good, it's very good, it's not good, but here I'll fix that and everything is good and working order. Why then do we have the world the way that we see it now? Why do we read the things on the internet and read the things in the news and why are we exposed to things like the things that we're exposed to? What happened between now and then? Today we're going to, between then and now, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. And I think Genesis chapter 3 is probably the one chapter that explains so much more about our world than any other chapter in all the scripture. Because in it, it tells us why the world is the way that it is. It tells us why the world is jacked up and broken. But it also gives us the first proclamation of the gospel in a seed form that would give us hope for the remainder of scripture. We're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to just read for now verses 1 through 6 and then um, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And then we'll pick up with some stuff in the middle. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the uh, fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. And ate it, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And jump down to verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Um, throughout our lives, we are given a series of tests. Right? Given a series of tests. If you pass the test, then you get rewarded, typically. If you fail the test, then there are consequences. Now, some of these tests are relatively benign, tests like IQ tests or personality tests. These things are, okay, you take them and you gain information about yourself, but the consequences are not so great if you don't do well on them. But there are tests in life that we know about that have very dire consequences, and the more important the test, the more serious the consequences are. So you've got a driving test. If you fail the test, you don't get the privilege of being able to drive a car legally. That's pretty bad. You've got the SAT. You've got a score that you want to reach. If you don't reach that score, then the consequences are you will be withheld admission from the college of your dreams. You've got the MCAT or the GREs or the GMATs or whatever test you have to take. And if you do well on the test and you're rewarded, if you don't do well on the test, then there are consequences. And the more important the test the more severe the consequences are. A pathology test, an oncology test, a drug test. You know, if you fail these tests, 
then the consequences can be devastating. We see in Genesis chapter 3 a test that is so important and is so of such high, high, high consequence that if, if Adam were to pass the test, it would lead to life for all. But in failing the test, it brought devastating effects to every single person who would ever breathe the breath of life. And it continues to affect us today. Without Genesis chapter 3, we wouldn't be able to explain a lot of the things that happen in the world. But with Genesis 3, I think it makes a whole, the, the world makes a whole lot more sense because of what happened here. Two things that we're going to look at, and I think they're huge. The first thing, through one man's disobedience, the world was broken. Through one man's disobedience, the world was broken. When God said the world is good, everything about the world is saying it works. Okay? Everything is in fine working order. But when sin entered the world, the world broke. And it's not the good world that we see described in the first pages of Genesis. Why? You remember when God made the world, he said it's good. He, the the meta narrative of Scripture, one of the major overarching themes of Scripture, one of the, the major threads throughout the Bible is, is this message of the kingdom. God's building a kingdom. We saw that in the days of creation, God's building a kingdom. On the seventh day, the king rested over all of creation, and he said, this is good. Okay, when God is king, and everything is working in obedience to God as king, then the world is good. But as soon as God and his throne was usurped, then the world no longer became good the way that God intended it to be. And so we see here, God says here, here's the way to make the world good, to keep the world good. He says, obey me. Here's a test. Obey me about this one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and everything will be good. And everything will be good. But man failed the test. And in eating and in pulling that fruit down from the tree, the entire world was stained with sin, with brokenness, with pain, with heartache. So what is it that happened? The, the, the serpent, the devil comes to Eve and he says, you know what? Hey, uh, did God really say you mustn't eat from this tree? So the first thing that happens here is doubt is cast in Eve's mind about the goodness of God. Everything up until this point in time, she's trusting God. God is trustworthy. I, he's worthy of, of my trust. He's given me privilege beyond understanding to be able to eat from all of these trees as a gardener. And so for the first time, doubt begins to creep into her mind as to whether God is really good and whether God is really loving. Did God really say that? And here's what she says in verse 2. She says, we may eat from it, but God did say, verse 3, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And then here's what she says, and you must not touch it or you will die. If, you, if, you, if you've been tracking and following with us in Genesis, God never said you must not touch the tree. He did say you must not eat it, but he never said you must not touch it. Here's the problem. This is why we need to know the word of God. This is why some of in Harvest 201, we have to memorize all these Bible verses. And people say that I'm a stickler for word for word memorizing the verses. And I am because here's why. Because one word that's off led to the downfall of human society, led to the downfall of the world. They, 
They misinterpreted the word of God. God, who is completely generous in everything that he did, they misinterpreted and they made him more restrictive than he was. He said, don't eat it. But Eve said, don't touch it. Why? Because when we don't memorize the word, we don't know the word of God, we fall susceptible to temptation. Because we don't, the the way that our minds are, is we don't reproduce what God says, we reconstruct what God says. And we create God in our own image. We create the word of God in our own image. Therefore, we don't know the word of God. We leave ourselves open to all kinds of devilish attacks and temptation. And we don't know the word of God. That's why we're so easy to fall into sin. And we don't know the word of God, what the word of God says, so we don't know how to live life in this world. How many of us have heard that the word of God says money is the root of all kinds of evil. We all have heard that, but that's not what the word of God says. If we believe that money is the root of all kinds of evil, then some of us who are great at making all kinds of money will think I shouldn't make that kind of money. And I shouldn't because money is a, is a morally neutral thing, can be used for great things, can be used for bad things. But what the word of God says, he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we fall in love with money, when we want more than we have, when we fall in, give in to the myth of more, the more I have, the better off I'll be. That's when we begin to fall into sin and temptation. You see, we need to know the word of God. And it was a failure to understand and appropriate the word of God into their own lives that opened them up to sin. Satan knew that that's not what God said. But he rolled with it because that's how he does. And then verse 4, he will not surely die, the serpent says. Tells a straight up lie now. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve is thinking, you know what? Maybe God's just holding back from me. Isn't that what we think when we're tempted with sin? Why does God say I shouldn't have this? Why does God say I shouldn't be with this boy? Why, Why does he say I shouldn't be with this girl? You know what? Maybe he's just holding out on me. Maybe having sex before marriage isn't a bad thing. Maybe God just wants to hold good things from me and keep these things from me. Why is it that, that alcohol is, is, is such a bad thing? After all, it just comes from fermented grape juice. That's all it is. God's just holding back from me. Just hold it out. He doesn't want me to have everything that's good in life. And we begin to doubt. We begin to question the goodness, the love, the trustworthiness of God. This is what begins to happen. And it says in verse 6, this is a tragic, tragic, tragic verse of Scripture. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And from here, this downward spiral into this abyss of sin in a world that was created by disobedience. Starting in in verse 7, we're going to begin to see. Here's what happens. This is what happens as a result of sin. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Chapter 3, verse 8, verse 7, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first thing that happens when sin enters is that we begin to feel ashamed of ourselves. It's this anger and this hatred towards our own selves that we begin to experience. 
it would be natural for them to experience guilt, right? Guilt is a result of what we have done. I feel guilty because I ate and I ate fruit I shouldn't have eaten. I feel guilty because I um, stole something from somebody else. I feel guilty because I was uh, I acted in a prideful way. Guilt is about what we have done, but shame is about who we are. I am ashamed of myself, and shame enters the world. And no longer are we at peace with our own selves. You ever wonder why we look at ourselves in the mirror and we can't stand who we are? Because of sin right here. Because we look at ourselves and we're ashamed. It's why we try endlessly to cover up the mistakes in our lives because we're ashamed of who we are. We can't love ourselves the way that God made us to love ourselves. How can we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves if we don't even love ourselves, some people say. But we don't even love ourselves. You ever wonder why people could take knives and cut themselves and destroy their very bodies? Ever wonder why someone could go so far as to commit, kill their own, take their very lives? It's because when we sinned, we were alienated against our own self and we couldn't stand the person that we see. Just a chapter before, made in the image of God. And yet now when we look at the mirror, sin took a rock and threw it at the mirror. And we now no longer look at ourselves in the image of God, but we see ourselves as we're looking into a funhouse, a carnival mirror, completely distorted. We look at it ourselves and we can't stand the person that we see. We look at ourselves and we say, you know what, that part of your body is ugly. We look at ourselves and we say, you're not good enough. Why can't you be more like this and this person? Sin has devastated our lives in such a way that we look at ourselves and we can't love ourselves the way that God created us to love ourselves. He goes on, he says in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. The second thing that we see is that we are alienated from God. Where before Adam and Eve walking around naked in the cool of the day, walking and talking, he walks with me and he talks with me. This beautiful relationship that we had with God all of a sudden is severed. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, 2. That we're broke, our relationship with God has been broken and we hide from God. See, a couple of weeks ago, Manny, my daughter, my four-year-old, and I were playing hide-and-seek in, 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 in Olivia in my bedroom. So you can play hide-and-seek in the bedroom, in the bathroom, in the closet, but you can't go anywhere else. This is not, I mean, this is maybe like a tiny little area. And so it's not really difficult to play hide-and-seek if you're the seeker. There's one particular time she was hiding and I was seeking. And she was hiding in the most... Uh, non-hidden location. She was hiding right next to the bed, which there's nothing really to hide under in that area. And so I walked into the bedroom and immediately I saw her, but I said, where's Manny? Where's Manny? Has anyone seen Manny? And I walked right past her into the bathroom and into the closet. Manny, are you here? I turned on lights. She wasn't there. Where's Manny? Where's Manny? Where's Manny? Why was I asking? Not because I didn't see her. Why was I? Where's Manny? And as I walked back into the bedroom, I said, where's Manny? Instead of hiding, Manny was looking like this. 
It's like, where's me? There you are. There's Manny. There you are. She was so eager to be found. Why? Because we have a good, she wasn't hiding because she'd done something bad. She was hiding because she'd actually done something good. And we we're playing a game as a way to reward her with daddy and Manny time. And she was so eager to be found because her relationship with her father was right. But why were Adam and Eve hiding here? Because they knew that their relationship with God had been severed. Because they had destroyed that relationship by disobedience. And when God says, where are you? Adam's like, if I hide behind this elephant, maybe God won't be able to see me. (laughs) God's like, I see. And the reason why he's asking where he is is because he wants Adam to repent in order that this relationship could be restored. But Adam hides and he says, I was afraid. This is what sin does in our lives. It causes us to be afraid of God, causes us to hide from God, causes us to be at animosity, at odds, at hatred with God, causes us to run away from him. The third thing that we see here, God calls him out. And then verse 12, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The woman who just in chapter two, verse 23, he begins to sing this amazing love song about. He throws her under the bus says, you know what? It's her fault. Our relationship with one another is severed at the core. It is destroyed at the very essence of the place where God says, this will be broken. It's broken if man is not with someone. He brings someone into into Adam's life in order that life might be good again. And because of sin, that very good thing has been ruptured. And Adam begins to blame her, begins to blame God, says, you know what, God, you said it wasn't good and you gave her to me. I think you gave me the wrong one. I need a new one because she jacked it all up. And he begins blaming her. This is where blame, passive, aggressive. Yeah, yeah, you know, your relationships break down because you can't stand another person or because they're manipulative. They're always talking behind there. They're saying one thing, but really they mean something else. You're trying to figure out why are they saying that? Do they mean what they say? Are they saying what they mean? Are they trying to tell me something else? There's passive aggressiveness. Someone is mad at you and you ask them what's wrong and they say nothing. They turn their back and they stomp out and you're trying to figure, what is going on? Why are these relationships so jacked up? Right here, because of sin. That's why husbands and wives end up divorcing. That's why husbands and wives can't see eye to eye. It's why parents and children can't understand each other. It's why friends begin to cheat on each other and begin to steal other people's boyfriends or girlfriends. It's why why we can't get along with each other. It's why we can't understand each other. It's why we misinterpret, we misunderstand. And all these issues and all these problems come. Because of sin. It's one failure at a tree that caused all of these things to happen. It goes on in verse 16 to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your pains. In childbearing, with pain, you will give birth to children. The fourth thing is that pain was introduced into our world. Sorrow, heartache. This is why cancer cells multiply in the lives of precious children. It's why we experience the pain of broken relationships. It's why we suffer. It's why we experience sorrow. It's why we cry at night. It's why when someone says something bad about us, we're just so Uh, jaded and hurt and we build up wall upon wall upon wall so that nobody can get close to us because pain is a reality of the life that we live and we feel it it's why for the woman 
Her greatest pains come with her children and with her relationship with her husband. Isn't that true, women? That your deepest pain comes either from the desire for that or from the actual fulfillment. You have it. You think everything is going to be great because you've got it. But you realize that your deepest wounds come from your children as they go astray. They don't listen to you. They come from your husband. The deepest stress comes from your family. Pain entered the world. Sorrow entered the world because one not so fine day, sin entered into the world. He goes on, verse 17, because you listen to your wife. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. It says man who is considered the king over all of creation, the servant was the soil, but no longer is the soil the servant to the master. But it fights against him. And there's toil. We're at war. We're at odds with the very creation. This is why earthquakes happen. This is why tsunamis happen. This is why uh, hurricanes come and steal life from people. It's why water, which was a very symbol of life, takes life, robs life from people. I remember two years ago when, when, our, 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 when Joshua passed away in a river. River, I, I, I hated that river. I hated water. I couldn't stand the sight of water. I, I hated it with a vicious passion for such a long time. We weren't meant to be at odds with creation, with nature, but we hate the very earth that, was, that we're created to rule over and to master and to be kings and queens over. And then the very last thing it says, until you, verse 19, until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The sixth thing that we see here about the nature of sin and what it did to the world is that we die. Every single one of us is a living human ticking time bomb, just waiting for our time bomb to go off and for us to, and for us to go back into the ground. Every single one of us. You, you see, why is it? Because a lot of times we think, well, death only entered when sin entered. Before sin, there was no death. I'm not quite sure that's right. Because if Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were eating fruit or, or eating plants or eating even animals, something had to die in order for them to eat, Right? Even if that thing you're eating, I went to Korea one time and I was eating this live squid and I put it in my mouth. Even though it's alive then, as soon as it goes into my, my stomach, it's dead. So why is it that death enters? It's because it says here, verse 24, it says they could no longer eat from the tree of life. As long as they could eat from the tree of life, they could live forever. But when sin entered, they were banished from the garden and could no longer eat from the tree of life. This is why our world is messed up. Because of this one tiny little three-letter word, word called sin. In the middle of sin is this big old I that says, I will replace God as the lawgiver and the lawmaker of my life. And when sin entered, all of this stuff happened. And a world became poisoned and devastated by the effects of that one choice that that one man made in failing the test at the tree. Isn't this why? In John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, 
Jesus sees Mary weeping, Martha weeping, and it says in John eleven thirty five, it says, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He knew that in a second he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't because Lazarus died and he was mourning that. He was weeping, the word literally weeping, it means that he was torn asunder. He was torn apart when he saw the devastating effects of sin as it wreaked havoc in the lives of people that he loved. That's why Jesus weeps. Because he realizes that this is how devastating sin and its effects and its consequences are in the lives of the people that he came to save. And this is why Jesus weeps. But in the midst of all of this darkness, God our Father leaves the light on when we see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 as he's pronouncing the curse on Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's saying, listen, pronouncing judgment over the enemy. He's saying, one day, an offspring of a woman is going to come. And you're going to strike his heel. You're going to get him. But at the end of it all, he's going to rise up and he's going to crush your head and you will be no more. Who is this offspring? The first thing that we see in this, and we're going to only look at two points today. The first thing that we see is through one man's disobedience, the world was broken. Through one man's obedience, the world will be redeemed. This man, obviously, this man is Jesus. I'm not a fan of um, comic books or movies about comic books, but one that probably we all need to watch is called Superman Returns. You remember this? I haven't seen all of it in its entirety, but I saw some clips of it. This is one great scene where uh, Superman has been away in planet Krypton for some time. And he comes back after all these years. People have forgotten about him. Lois Lane has written an article about him saying that the world doesn't need him anymore. And he comes back one night, flies under the rooftop where Lois Lane is, and they start having this conversation. She's like, Gil, we've moved on from you. We don't need you. And he begins, to, he begins engaging her in conversation. And she says, you know what? We've forgotten about you because you left us. And right? it's over. The world doesn't need a savior and neither do I. And then Superman kind of paces back and forth and, he's, and then he flies her up over Metropolis. And he invites Lois Lane to listen, to hear what he hears. And he says, what do you hear? And she says, nothing. I don't hear anything. He says, you don't hear anything, but I hear everything. I hear it all. He says, I hear the cries of the people. And if you listen, you'll hear that they're crying out for a savior. This is like powerful moment. I was watching with Elijah and he's like crying and crying. Just <laughs> this powerful thing. And I, as I think about that, I think about Jesus when he talks in Matthew 9 about how he sees the crowds. He has compassion on them. Because he hears the cries. The world is crying out for a savior. In every realm of life, in every world that you live in, as soon as you realize that there's brokenness, you begin crying out for a Savior. Listen, if you think your social life 
is jacked up, then you cry out for a savior in the form of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse because you think that they'll fix the brokenness in your life. You know how much pressure that is on him or her? If your sports team is broken, then you cry out for a savior in the form of a first-round draft pick to lead your broken team to the promised land of salvation once again so that you could celebrate that victory. If your church is broken, then you look for a savior in the form of we need to get a savior in a new pastor. If your country is broken, seven, eight, six, six, seven years ago, how many people were looking for a savior in the form of a new president? How much pressure is that on a human being to be the savior for all these people? Have you noticed how much our president has aged from the time he entered office into now? Because of these ridiculous pressures that have been put on him without the support, without the prayers, without the encouragement that he needs in order to thrive in that role. But what if your entire world is broken? How much pressure is that on one person? Who in the world could bear the brunt of such weight and such pressure and such stress? Only one who came from heaven, and it's God himself. Who God sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be what no human being could ever be, to be what every human being longs for, but could never even imagine the greatness, the magnitude of this kind of a Savior. And throughout his life, Jesus, at the age of 30, he enters into ministry. We talked about this a couple weeks back. But there, Jesus Christ faces another test. It's very similar to the test that Adam faced in the garden. See, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says Jesus Christ, it literally calls him the second Adam. Why? Because Adam had a test in a garden. The second Adam has a test in a wilderness. Both of them involve food. Both of them involve the pride of life. For Adam, it was you could be like God. For the second Adam, it was you could have all of these things if you bow down and worship, all these things that the Father is withholding from you. And in the wilderness, the second Adam passed that test. And throughout his life, you see Jesus doing all kinds of Savior-like things that cause people to wonder, is he the one that we've been waiting for? but he hasn't faced yet his greatest test. You know how, you know how if you're from a, a, a small nation like Angola or from Korea, the Olympics are a big deal for you, especially if there's one event where you've got one champion, you've got one hero, you've got one savior. In the last Winter Olympics, for all of us who are from Korean ethnic, the Korean ethnic background, it was Yana Kim. And she was our ice princess, the darling of South Korea, the pearl of a country. Beautiful. And every time she would skate with every triple toe loop and every triple axle, the hope of a nation rested on her landing that spin and landing that loop. And our fingernails got shorter, our stress levels got higher, but every time she did it, we would cheer like she was our own. 
But we would always say, but wait, there's still one final, one final test. That last event where she does that long routine to Swan Lake or whatever it is, and until she passes, it's not yet, it's not, we're not yet in the clear. And so you remember that for as much as Jesus had done, you see him preparing for that final test. It was also in a garden. And you see Jesus hunched over on that rock praying because he knows, he knows that this final test will be the hardest one yet. The first Adam took a test in a garden. And the second Adam would take another test in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam was told, there's a tree. Obey me and you will live forever. The second Adam was told, tomorrow there will be a tree. Obey me and you'll be torn to pieces. You will give up your life for the sake of a people undeserving. The first Adam failed the test and the world was broken. But the second Adam passed the test and the world was redeemed. See, what was it that Jesus did at the cross? We who were naked and ashamed because of sin, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was stripped naked and hung ashamed on the tree for you and for me, to cover our shameful nakedness. We were alienated from God and we hid. Jesus Christ was alienated from God. when He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hid his face from his son in order that we could be reconciled to God. It was us who falsely accused, wrongly accused, blamed one another for our mistakes. It was Jesus who was falsely accused and wrongly blamed for our mistakes. It was Jesus Christ who took the pain and the sorrow. He was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with suffering, acquainted with pain, such pain that the world had never known before, out of which a new word was formed to talk about what kind of pain it was that Jesus experienced. Excruciating pain, a pain that comes out of the crux, the cross, excruciating pain. If ever there was someone who knew pain and sorrow, it was Jesus alienation, separation, hatred, discord between us and the very ground that we live with, with nature. It was thorns and thistles that, that infested the ground that we were called to rule over. It was a crown of thorns that was placed upon Jesus' head in order that we could be reconciled with all of creation, in order that once again we could rule over it, lord over it, and be the kings over creation. And it was to dust that we would one day return. It was Jesus Christ. God himself, who from eternity past to eternity future, knew no death, yet he willingly became a human in order that he might die on a cross for you and for me. In order that one day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more illness, and no more death, for the old order of things has passed away. Because... You see, death entered when we took the place of God. But life entered when God took the place of you and me. 
See, man sinned when we tried to be what only God could be. But God brought salvation when he became what only we deserve to be. In Romans 5, 17, it tells us specifically, it says, for if by the trespass, the sin of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and are the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, at the cross, the heel of the offspring of the woman was struck. But Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. And he didn't remain in the tomb. As we sang, he burst through that tomb with life and with victory. And at that resurrection, he crushed the head of the serpent so that the serpent, will, Satan, will no longer rule and reign over our lives. Death no longer has the final say. Sorrow, sickness, pain no longer has the final say. That we have hope and we have life. Because in the garden, about the tree, the second Adam came and he passed the test for you and for me. That through one man's sin, the world was broken. Through one man's obedience, the world was redeemed. He says, this is a gift of God. And it's not for everybody. He says, this gift is only just like any other gift. Someone offers you a gift, right? you need to receive it in order for that gift to be yours. The hands by which you receive this is faith. It's not going to church. It's not singing songs. It's not shedding tears. It's faith that says, I trust in you, Jesus. I trust in you and you alone for my salvation because you are the only one that I need. Let's pray together. Thumbs up. Let's take a moment to respond and reflect. And understand, my friends, that sin isn't just a little bad choice that you make, that I make, that we make. Sin is absolutely and utterly destructive, not only to your life, but to the lives of those around you. We're not just pretty bad people. We are sinful and God-haters because that's what sin has done to us. Let's take a moment to pray. Maybe for some of us, if you're already a follower of Christ, to reflect on all that Jesus Christ has done for you and all that that life, that death, that resurrection means for you. Just offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. Committing our hearts to the Lord. And as we pray, if any of us in here are not followers of Christ, right, you can be today. If you have not re received the gift of life, you can receive that now. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you need God's grace in your life, you need what Jesus has done on the cross 
your life. That's you. We're not going to spend much time here, but if that's you, I'm just going to ask you with everyone's eyes closed just to raise your hand where you are so that we can pray together. Like, I need Jesus in my life right now to be my Savior. Thank you. Anyone else? There's a least one sister in here give the life to the Lord Jesus okay I'm gonna um, just pray a prayer for the sake of time I'm not gonna wait for you to repeat after me but I'm gonna pray this prayer and if you can just in your heart pray this prayer after me Lord Jesus I confess that I have sinned and that I need a Savior. I know that the only Savior who could rescue me is Jesus Christ. Would you come into my life, forgive my sins, and be my master. Turn over a new leaf in my life so that beginning today, I would be a new creation. Help me to love you as you have loved me. And help me to be the child of God that you want me to be. I love you because you've loved me first. In Jesus' name I pray. So Father, for all of us in here, may the gospel continue to amaze. May it be good every day. And may it be new every day. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done that, all that, so that we might have hope. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for life. Thank you for life that is eternal and begins the moment we believe. We love you. pray all these things in Jesus' name.